our present passage that we look at here this morning makes me think of maybe a, a, an island full of vacationers that suddenly find themselves needing to escape an erupting volcano. You're like, what verses are these, J.D.? I have these like strange thoughts as I develop illustrations and things of the truth we find in our, our passage. Now, so these people have been vacationing right at the base of these, this smoking mountain. They've been enjoying its unique volcanic beaches, floating in the waters of unusually warm lagoons. And they've been paying top dollar for villas that rest on the cliffs and enjoying the views. And finally, the mountain is showing its full power, not just smoking, but erupting and spewing lava. And they start to complain to the management and telling them, you really need to do something about this. I paid good money for this vacation. And as the islanders are fleeing the island, they're begging the rich tourists to join them. <clears throat> but some of those tourists are demanding, saying they've paid for a full week and they are going to get it. Others are certain that the inhospitable mountain will finally calm down once it recognizes how special its guests truly are. Obviously, this is a ridiculous scenario. No one is foolish enough to think that they can sway a volcano to change its plans. But somehow people think that they have found some sort of life hack by which they can control the righteous God. By which they can somehow control his purposes for the universe. And they, may, and they can mistake the loving God for some sort of pool boy that's coming to them with a menu and asking them how they would like to be saved. Last week we looked at the call that we've been given to see that we all recognize God's grace. We looked at the call that we have as a congregation to do what we're told in verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Meaning see to it that no one sitting here in these seats might fail to come to salvation. Totally trusting Christ as your Savior. And he goes on to explain from the Jewish experience, this being the letter written to the Hebrews, for you have not come to what might be touched, what may be touched, speaking of Mount Sinai, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the heavens, I'm sorry, made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. We looked at how God spoke from Mount Sinai to Israel with the giving of the Mosaic Law. And we saw the awe-inspiring nature of the holiness of God as He put it on display in fire and storm and thunder and lightning. And we read of how awful it would have been for anyone to come to, at, at, close enough and even touched the mountain, warned that they would die. <clears throat> and this established the distance between God's righteousness and our sinfulness. 
But we also learned about the awesome setting that we've been encouraged to draw near to as we come to God through Christ. In contrast to what we have not come to, what could be touched, which, which most people would desire, I want something tangible, which the, many of the readers would be saying, but, but I want that tangible temple. We've come to something that can't be touched, but is not awful, but awesome. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. That of the blood of Abel. We looked at what in knowing Christ as our Savior. When he says, draw near boldly before the throne of grace that we are able to be a part of an awe-inspiring setting and with awe-inspiring participants and awe-inspiring salvation. And this morning's passage goes from there and warns us against thinking that God is apathetic toward the salvation that he offers. So we pick up in verse 25. See that that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape, speaking of the Israelites of the Old Testament, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This this idea of our God being a consuming fire. Think of, of how God called Moses into his service with the burning bush. You know, if you find some dry bush out in the desert and you hold a match underneath it, you're not just going to see one leaf on it burn. The whole bush is just going to become engulfed. And yet it just continued to burn and burn and burn and not burn out. He's referencing back to Mount Sinai as well. No one was to touch any part of this mountain Because not only was the top of it consumed with fire, the entirety of the mountain was consumed with God's holiness. What is consuming about fire? Nothing escapes its path. We have entire departments in our municipalities that are specifically spaced out around a city or town to make sure that those people are always ready because when a fire starts up, 
It's not going to stop until somebody comes there and tries to put it out. Nothing escapes its path. And this is the reasoning for why it's expected that God would consume our lives with worship of Him. But our passage begins with a challenge to make sure that we don't refuse Him. With the expectation that God will consume the life that He invades, I want to encourage you, don't mistake God's grace for apathy. Don't mistake our gracious God for being an apathetic God. We can easily associate God with our parents' style of parenting, right? We can easily associate him sometimes with, it it can be a good thing. You know, maybe when parents have tried to live a godly life, when they have admitted their mistakes, when they've admitted, you know, the way that I just behave, that is not how God treats us. It can be instructive in that way. Sometimes it's not helpful to relate God to the parenting style that we've experienced. Maybe of abandonment. Maybe of rage. Most of the time it's a mixed bag, though. And it's a matter of what we've chosen to focus on a lot of times. But it's not good to hear God's wrath, to hear of God's wrath, and then to think of the parent that might have been given to angry fits, disciplining in in uncontrolled anger. It's also not helpful to hear of God's grace and think of the parent who had trained their kids by really, that they they, they really didn't need to worry about their parents' commands until about the fifth time that they said something. Or the third time that they've counted to ten. Our passage gives the readers forewarning not to refuse God's call to them to be saved. A lot of this is directed to those Hebrew readers that are kind of like, I, you know, I, there's a lot to this idea that Jesus is the Messiah. I really think he probably is the Messiah, but I, I'm just not sure that I can join up with this crowd. There's a big difference, though, between someone showing grace and being apathetic. Grace, it could be defined as God's riches... At Christ's expense. Receiving what we don't deserve because Christ received what we deserve. Death. Apathy would be described as a lack of interest, a lack of concern. I saw a sign advertising for the National Apathy Society. It said, become a member or not. We don't care. (laughs) That is not God's approach. Don't mistake God's grace with people to him saying, live for me or not. I don't care. God is not apathetic towards his glory. He's not apathetic towards our obedience. He's not apathetic towards our trusting Christ for salvation. God shows the grace of the opportunity to turn to him, to be saved, to live for him. But he's not apathetic about the cost of, of offering that. The cost was Jesus Christ. Don't make the mistake of mistaking God's grace for apathy. First of all, do not reject God's escape from His wrath. 
Do not reject God's escape from his wrath. He says it, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned him on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. These readers have been reminded, as I mentioned, of God's presence at Mount Sinai that shook with thunder and lightning and of the blood of Jesus that speaks of God's grace at the great cost of Jesus' life. And these messages were, these, these, these messages, these, these readers, they were at risk of being, of ignoring and rejecting and returning to the law because it was something they could touch. It gave them a confidence. The warning is now coming from heaven. Not just their family members, not just their priest that they grew up with saying, I haven't seen you at the temple lately. The warning is now coming from heaven where the exalted Christ is sitting, having made his final sacrifice which can make his followers perfect for all time. And being compared to the shaking mountain, the, the, the mountain that was consumed by fire that had clouds and lightning and thunder circling it, the idea that this warning to not reject Christ is now coming from heaven is being given as greater than, more important, more vital to be listened to than the warnings at Mount Sinai. Anyone who is rejecting is rejecting the gospel is in great danger. Those of the Old Testament who rejected God's call to trust him, to trust and obey him, did not escape his wrath. And there's even less of a chance of escaping his wrath when the final mediator, the Messiah, between God and man has spoken God's final good news of the gospel and it's been rejected. There will be a final shaking of the heavens and earth before the new heavens and the new earth are established. The prophet Zechariah foretold of the second coming of the Messiah as an earth-shaking event. You can read in Zechariah 14.4 what it says. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that the one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. This will come when Christ at his second coming his feet touch down on the Mount of Olives. And to reject Christ means being rejected in the end. As the Apostle John foresaw in the great judgment day of God's. In Revelation 20 verse 11 he says, Then I saw a great white throne and, whom he, and, him, whom, I'm sorry, and him who was seated on it. And from the presence, from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Meaning for those who had rejected him. The very earth and clouds were like, oh, there you are. I mean, imagine a city is fortified 
And, it, and it's trying, it, it's set up to, to withstand a siege of a mighty army. And, and that mighty army just over the, the, the horizon sends a delegate, sends a representative, and he comes riding in on a donkey. And he's carrying an olive branch. And he comes in and he, and he meets with their council. And he, and he pleads with them to stop resisting. He pleads with them to, to uh, surrender. And they look at him and they think, who's this guy riding on a donkey? He doesn't even have any weapons on him. All they have to fight with are olive branches. We've got nothing to worry about. Well, obviously, the olive branch is simply a sign of peace. But imagine upon their rejection and his returning over the hillside, they look out and they see dark clouds forming. And they think, boy, there's a storm brewing. But as it gets closer, they realize it's bombers and cruise missiles and drones with hellfire missiles. And they're thinking, I think we made a mistake. That is the picture here. Warning us not to refuse God's grace. And there's a danger in mistaking His grace for some sort of, eh, take it or leave it. Not really, not really, doesn't really matter to me. Do not warn Him. Do not mistake or reject Him who warns from heaven. Too often people think of the humble Jesus on the cross and they mistake him. They, They replace him instead of the exalted Jesus who is the captain of God's dreadful army. People want to argue that the God of the Old Testament is different than the Jesus of the New Testament. You know, it's the judge, but then you got the gracious God. But they what they need to hear is what I'm saying. The gospel carries more, just as much, if not more, danger in being rejected than the people would have had in rejected, rejecting Jesus, God, I'm sorry, rejecting God at Mount Sinai. Our world thinks that somehow God is on the ropes with his poll numbers plummeting. <clears throat> and he's, he's got angels shuffling around saying, we've got we to rebrand ourselves here. Right? We got to do something because nobody's believing in you anymore. That is not how God deals with it. No one should mistake his long suffering for apathy. As we're told in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Well, secondly, I want to challenge you here this morning. Live today for what will never be shaken. Having received Christ as your Savior. Having not rejected His great salvation that He offers at great cost to Himself. 
and having and not being apathetic about it at all, offering it to you and having received Christ as your Savior, having the Holy Spirit indwelling you, which is what sets you apart from other people in this world, live today for what can never be shaken. He said at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And he goes on to explain, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken. So in other words, the present physical uh, heaven and earth, the the physical creation, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful and receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The whole physical world will be shaken and will pass away. And the only, only those things of God's kingdom will remain, we're reminded of here. Lives built on the spiritual rock of the gospel will remain unshaken. Recall, this is what Jesus tells us of the person who is like the one who hears his words and obeys them. He is like the person who builds his life on the unshakable rock. As he told us in Luke 6, the one who hears his words and obeys them are like the man. It's like the man who built a house, who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood rose and the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built well. That is what it means to build your life on what cannot be shaken, on what is eternally valuable, on God's glory. Respond to the exalted world-shaking Savior by being grateful for what is unshakable. It's being grateful for what we're told in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. A kingdom that will never be shaken. That is as mighty as he is. He's being grateful because of what we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 24. Told about the end of all times is when he delivers the kingdom of God. The king, I'm sorry, speaking of Christ, he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. I want to share with you, you're you're familiar, I'm sure you've noticed it on our bulletin here. We make use of of what I like to call a four-arrow cross. You kind of can't see the side arrows there. But this is very representative of our understanding of life worship. It begins with God initiating a relationship with us by His grace. It begins with that first downward arrow of God's grace toward us. It's it's significant in the image that it's the largest arrow on there. And our response to Him is to love Him, is to worship Him, is to receive His grace and love especially as he has shown it on Christ our response is one of gratitude our simplest definition of worship 
is responding to what God has revealed about himself in the way that's appropriate to him. It's appropriate that we praise him for what he has told us about himself. It's appropriate that we praise him, that we worship him for what he has done for us in Christ, for what he he provides for us in life. And the first way that we should respond to God's grace to us is to receive it. Is to recognize that it's grace because we don't deserve it. To recognize that I don't deserve a relationship with him. And the only way that I'm going to have a relationship with him is if somebody else clears out all the sin that I have that gets in between me and him. And to recognize that the only person that could ever do that did it. That being God himself. He took my sin on himself on the cross. And in dying for my sin and rising from the grave... What God's grace shows me is the opportunity to receive Christ as my Savior. And to receive God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness on my part. And that's my very first response that I should make to God's grace is to receive it. And that to begin a life of responding to God as I should respond in worship, loving Him back. You know, I've shared with you before, there's a deep reason for why I call our worship team the praise team. You know, as as awkward as a term that is, we, we don't want to let you off the hook and think that coming here and singing some songs means you've done your worshiping for the week. There's a whole world of life worship that we should be living out there. Again, our worship should, is, is to be our response to God for who he is, for what he has told us about himself. And so when he tells us, love your neighbor as yourself, worship him by doing, guess what? Loving your neighbor as yourself. Responding to him as he has told you he deserves, that he's worthy of. That's life worship. Gathering here and praising together should just be the beginning of your week of worship. And it's a great way to start it. So live today for what will never be shaken. Also, by offering God your whole life as worship. So we're told here, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Reverence is an attitude of mind which acknowledges the greatness of God. Awe is the appropriate response to the awesome God. He's full of awe, so we should be full of awe. It's, refuse, it's, re, it's referencing back to the image of God's people stunned by His holiness as it consumed Mount Sinai. Having reverence and awe for God is not contradictory to looking to Him through the death of Christ. Uh, Sadly, in in, in the world's pride, in our pride without the grace of God at work in our life, we look at Christ on the cross and we see something weak. We see something that it's like, okay, well, I, I guess I'll 
pay homage to that every now and then. Got to, you know, take care of that religious side of life. The fact is this. It took nothing short of the death of God himself to appease his righteous standard. We should look at that and say, that is what I deserve. And even if I did it a million times over, it wouldn't be worth what Jesus did in his one-time death for me. And reverence, acknowledging his total gracious reign everywhere is how we should respond to it. Awe, being stunned by his gracious presence is how we should respond to it. You know, the, the other two arrows, left and right, on this cross also represent how we should be responding to God's grace. Loving fellow believers, loving unbelievers. Our response should be vertical and it should be horizontal. Our lives should be lived, our daily lives should be lived as responses to God's righteous grace. Just as much as he has created the whole world, as far as the latest telescope can see and peer into the universe, he rules it. And we should live in reverence and awe of him wherever we are in this world. And this means offering worship to God which is in line with his good character. And rather than living like autonomous beings like our culture encourages us to do, we are to see everything as life worship. And that's why our next chapter branches into all of a sudden, it's like live in this way. As we'll see in verses 1 through 3, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. He breaks off into this litany of so be living in this way because that is how we live in reverence and awe of life worship. In our daily decisions based on what is important to us. But are those decisions based on what's important to God? As God changes you, are those decisions changed to look more and more like what is important to you is also what's important to God? If you're a pyro like me, this idea of consuming fire, you kind of get it, right? You understand the relationship between fire and awe. Okay, I'm one of those guys... That like, if you light a campfire, you know, I'm going to be staring at it the whole time. I don't know what it is. Um, what would happen if I went, I would never do this, don't, don't worry. You know, what would happen if I went over here and just kind of started a fire in the corner of our building? I mean, we would not feel safe in here, right? Eventually, it would probably consume the whole thing. I mean, the, the, we have free speech in this country, but they say... One of the things you're not allowed to do is yell fire in a crowded building. Why? Because that fire isn't going to stop. And you're probably going to have a stampede to get away from it. <clears throat> Our God is a consuming fire. 
This comes from Deuteronomy 4, verses 23 through 24. Take care lest you forget the covenant of, God, of the Lord your God, which he made with you. And then he starts talking about idolatry. Forgetting that covenant would mean making a carved image in the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden. Then he gives the explanation. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He's a jealous God in the sense that he looks at our life and he says, that's mine. So bring it here. That doesn't sit well with us. To the degree that that doesn't sit with that well with us is the degree to which our culture has infiltrated our minds. But God has every right, and he does so. He says, points to any part of your life and says, that's mine. Bring it under my dominion. Bring it under my control. Bring it under my direction. He's jealous for what is his. Every person that is made in the image of God is his. Our culture, the idolatry, the carved image that our culture is creating is worshiping self-autonomy. I will define who and what I am. I will define the function of my body. Women saying, I will define the function of my womb. I will define who and, and how I have sexual relations. And I will demand it be without consequence. You know, we've been told that it's respectful to refer to someone by the pronouns that they want to be used. We're told that's a matter of respect. God expects respect for people to reference the pronouns that he gave them. There is no part of this earth that does not belong to him. There's no part of you that does not belong to you, him. There's no part of your life that does not belong to him. Worship him by offering it to him. Let's bow our heads.